Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Turn to the list. Uh, Daniel chapter 11, verse number 21. I just picked these two verses because one really concerns Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, a set of scripture, and then at verse number 36 is the game changer where it really starts to speak about uh, more or less the Antichrist. Uh, verse 21, and in his estate shall stand up a vile person to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Again, speaking of Antiochus Epiphanes. Verse 36, though, is, is, is a change. Several years down the road. And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself. And as I read this, some of this stuff should sound familiar as it's described the little horn before. And he shall exalt himself, magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the the indignation be accomplished. For that is determined. For that that, I get two that's in there, I skipped one. For that that is determined shall be done all right again this is part 16b a continuance of our conflicts of the north and of the south here in the book of daniel lord jesus i come to you tonight i'm thankful lord god for being able to be here again i pray lord open up our hearts and our minds of our understanding god of your word help me lord jesus to uh, God, provide it, and Lord, speak of it in a way, God, that people be able to understand. God, as we walk through this, I pray, Jesus, again this evening, oh Lord, just line upon line and precept upon precept. I know, God, that you'll help us, God, through this this evening. In the lovely name of Jesus Christ that I pray, amen and amen. Everybody say amen. You may be seated tonight in the lovely name of the Lord. The lovely name of the Lord. Amen. So we ended, we ended last week, we ended last week with uh, uh, this, this gentleman right here, Seleucius Philopater. Uh, we ended with him. He was the one that came and was the raiser of the taxes because uh, the northern kingdom was put under tribute to uh, Rome. Rome uh, made them pay tribute money. And as a result of that, he began undoubtedly to start raising taxes of people that was under his care so that they could pay the tribute money to Rome. But after he dies, there's another one that's going to take his place and come into his stead. And the Bible states in verse 21, in his estate, speaking of Seleucus uh, Philippators, in his estate shall stand a vile person. Wouldn't that be a great way to be known? They're just a vile person. Uh, but that is this individual that we have spoken about back in Daniel chapter number 8. Now I'll put that there because we spoke about that pretty extensively of Antiochus Epiphanes is this vile person that, that is coming into place, all right? And Antiochus Epiphanes, as we've seen in chapter number eight, he prefigures very well uh, what, will, what will become to be known as the Antichrist in the future uh, for a future time. As a matter of fact, a lot of, a lot of scholars call uh, this particular Antiochus uh, the Old Testament Antichrist. He prefigures him so well. But, but whenever Seleucius up here, Philopater, died, uh, which we're, we're assuming from uh, Heliodorus, if you'll remember, probably by being poisoned, there was a few possibilities or a few candidates to take uh, this gentleman's throne. Uh, he had a couple of sons at that particular time right here below him. He had a son named Demetrius, and he had another son that was named, of all things, Antiochus, all right? And, but the problem with the matter was this. Demetrius was a son that at that time was in Rome, and he was in prison in Rome. So it's hard to rule a kingdom whenever you're in prison yourself. So Demetrius wasn't going to be able to do it. And in this other Antiochus, it was just an infant, just an infant, just, just a toddler, if you will, that was in Syria. And so their dad, Seleucus, dies. They are the two ones that would be most likely for the throne. One is too young. The other one is in prison. And what happens is Antiochus Epiphanes, he's the brother of Seleucus, Philopater. And so he's being, he's being the uh, charlatan, if you will. He's coming in with all... Remember, this guy works through deceit and deception. 
And so he comes under the guise that he's going to be the caretaker for this young Antiochus now because he's without a father. So he's going to come in and be a caretaker for him and a guardian, if you will, for him and watch over him. But through guile and deceit, getting that close to the throne, he weasels his way in some way that we don't know exactly how, but he weasels his way somehow into the throne room. And so the scripture then in verse 21 bears out very well that uh, they were not going to honor necessarily him with the kingdom, but he found his way in there. He comes in peaceable with his flatteries. He obtains the throne room and obtains the kingship and takes it by flattery. And uh, just kind of a a side point, after he's supposedly guardian over young Antiochus, uh, young Antiochus is later killed uh, by someone else that may very well have been set up by Antiochus Epiphany so he might have had all this plotted and planned from the very beginning all right and so history records that he killed he killed his own somehow had his own nephew uh, killed and taken away and then the Bible starts with verse number uh, 22 starting or or, or, or if I may yeah verse 22 the Bible says and again we'll go a little bit verse by verse here in the beginning and with the armies of a flood shall they be overthrown overflown from before him overthrown's good too by the way from before him and shall be broken yea also the prince of the covenant and after the league made with him he shall work deceitfully for he shall come up and shall become strong with a small people he shall enter peaceably even upon the fattest places of the province and he shall do that which his fathers have not done nor his father's fathers. He shall scatter among them the prey and spoil and riches. Yea, and he shall forecast his devices against the strongholds, even for a time. Now, what's beginning to speak about in verse 22 is that Antiochus Epiphanes did several, several military campaigns throughout uh, his rulership. He attempted a lot of different military campaigns to uh, get more land, to get more support, and by and large, he was very successful in those attempts. And there were some attempts that he made on what we know as the southern kingdom or the king of the south, Egypt. He did some attempts there to overthrow them and overtake them, uh, seemingly almost like a flood absolutely overtaken but there was one such battles and military campaigns that he had if you'll notice in verse 22 speaking of those that were overflown or those that were broken it says yea also the prince of the covenant that's a peculiar phrase the prince of the covenant the prince of the covenant is actually in reference to the high priest that is over the Jews. There there was really no higher office among the Jews than to be the high priest of the Jews. And so he even came against the prince, if you will, of the covenant or the prince of the Jewish people. And the individual that served that office at that time was a high priest by the name of Onias. And Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes came in and he removed him from his office of being priest because he was an orthodox, true-blood Jew. And uh, he, he had a brother by the name of Jason that Antiochus Epiphanes put in his place because this other man that he put in his place, Jason, the brother of Onias, the first high priest, he had this idea that he wanted to bring Greek culture in among the Jews. And that was a common thing. Greek was everywhere. I mean, in the education, uh, the language had become so uh, prominent among those people. They've been under the Gentiles for years uh, that that. The universal language of the day is Greek. That's by and large a large reason why you see the New Testament written in Greek because it was the universal language of that time, of that day. And so this is what took place. And so he, they, they, he wanted to put Jason in there. I call him the puppet prophet because uh, he's basically doing whatever Antiochus Epiphanes wanted him to do. And they were going to push the Greek culture. It, it's what they call Hellenizing a country. Whenever you Hellenized it, you brought it to the Greek culture, the Greek education, the Greek language. You just got it totally just consumed with all everything that had to do with Greek ideas. And so Antiochus put him there because he would promote that and do that and then in verse number 23 again uh, shows up one of the great if you would call it great attributes of this Antiochus Epiphanes and that is by and large his trait of deception and of being a deceiver and that mirrors very well uh, the Antichrist in the last days he is going to operate through the instrumentation of deception and 
deceit. And probably another reason why this guy here uh, prefigures the Antichrist so well. But whenever he comes in, he is going to go toward the south, the king of the south, Egypt, and the scripture that I read to you here, 23 and 24, shows that he is going to make a league with the king of the south. Well, the king of the south at this time, the king of the south at this time is a man by the name of, uh, of Ptolemy Philometer. All right, that's great, great names here. Ptolemy Philometer. These two people are sons as a result of this marriage. Remember, Antiochus Magnus gave his daughter Cleopatra to Ptolemy Epiphanes and Epiphanes. Epiphanes, and he thought, you know what? She's going to be loyal to me and not to her husband. And the reverse was true. Well, as a result of their union came these two boys. And Ptolemy Philometer, get all these right, Philometer was presently the king down there in Egypt. And there seemed to be a little bit of a power struggle for really who was to be the top dog in Egypt between the two boys. You know how boys are. Uh, brothers in, in particular, one's always trying to outdo the other. And so the same was the case as far as the throne room. They were kind of in a little family ruckus between each other who was really going to be the main man in control there. And so there was a power struggle that was going on. And so Antiochus came down, and you got to understand, there's nothing that this guy did that he didn't think about before he'd done it. Uh, he always has an ulterior motive in, in, in mind. So since there's a power struggle going on in the south in Egypt, he'd really like to have Egypt. He's just going to just kind of sweeten the pot, so to speak. And so he comes down because these are his nephews. In reality, these are his nephews. Amen. Because here's Antiochus. That's, that, that was a son that are almost nephews. They're his relatives at best anyway. But he comes down and he sides with Philometer. You know what? You should be king. You're the man. You're the one. And so that makes Philometer feel kind of good. You know, I got, I got a little alliance here. I got someone that's supporting me. And that would be as things would go. And so there's this thing. He says, you're, you're going to be the man. Uh, but what we see a little later the very person that he sides with later on, he's going to end up fighting against. So he's always, he's conniving. He's a very, very sly individual. In verse number 24, it speaks about him entering in peaceably. And so he does, because now that he's siding with the so-called king of Egypt, you know, even the people of Egypt have a little different flavor for Antiochus, the king of the north that they would normally be afraid of. And, but he's coming in peaceably and with flatteries, and, and it's getting him into Egypt, and he's able to do some things. And this guy over here, he, he, he's, he's a very wealthy man. He's, he's become very, very rich and as a result of that, you know, if, if you don't have any friends, you can buy friends. And so Antiochus Epiphanes uses his money and from his military campaigns that he was successful at, he uses that to buy people off. And that would make him different from any king before him in the north or even the grandfathers. Because whenever they got their riches from their campaigns, they kept their riches but not Antiochus Epiphanes. He didn't keep them. He didn't hoard them. He was different from them because he shared the wealth, but he had an ulterior motive in sharing the wealth. He wanted to get people support, their vote. You know, if he had called together an army, they would come because he kind of had, you know, he had a little wager there. I did this for you, you know, so why don't you do this for me? So his intentions are not and were not Pure. In essence, he was bribing uh, the people and manipulating the people, uh, leaders even at that, to, to, to uh, cooperate rather with his plan, what he had in mind. So we come to verse number 25, or if I'll back up real quick, in verse number 23, when it says he made a league with him, that's speaking of Ptolemy Philometer, if you need to just have a little spot there to know who the he, him, or what is. In verse 25, it says he, this is Antiochus Epiphanes, shall stir up his power, and his courage against the king of the south, that's Ptolemy Philometer, with a great army, and the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he, that is the king of the south, shall not stand, for they, Epiphany's army that is, shall forecast devices against him. Yea, they that feed of the portion of his meat, and what I'm saying is, the people that were bribed by what he had, all right, shall destroy him, him being Philometer. See, he's gotten into Egypt. He's got some people on his side. He, he's given them things, and they're thankful for that. He's gotten some of even uh, Philometer's own Egyptians against the king. And his army shall overflow, and many shall fall down slain. Verse 27, and both these kings' hearts shall be to do mischief, and they shall speak lies at one table, 
but it shall not prosper, for yet the end shall be at the time appointed. So, Antiochus Epiphanes now comes against Egypt. Now, Nile not just siding with Philometor saying you're the man, but now he's coming to exert authority over this person he at once sided with. And he brings a great army. And as he came down with a great army, Philometor comes up with a great army and stops, if you will, Antiochus Epiphanes in his tracks. But although he may have stopped him from going any further south, Antiochus defeated him there where he was stopped. Amen. Because he exercised, because of earlier supposedly siding with the king of the south, had got a much influence into Egypt. Again, he did all of this knowing what he was going to do. He had very much so purpose, pretending to be an ally when in reality he was a rotten O enemy from the start. And so the people that he had bribed from the beginning, they were willing to stand with him because of the money they had received by him. And so he comes now and he fights against Ptolemy, the Philometer, and loss. And in verse number 27, whenever it speaks of this loss, whenever Philometer loses to Antiochus Epiphanes, Epiphanes takes him away from the south. Amen. And they sat at a table, these two foes, Philometer and Epiphany, sit at a table. And they tried to come to reason together and get some type of ground of peace between one another. But it says that each were basically lying through their teeth. They were all trying to look out for themselves. They were lying to each other. So they never came to a place of peace because they were all try- each one was trying to get the upper hand on the other. All right? You see in verse 27 then that the people of Alexandria, it's a city in Egypt. He goes back down. Antiochus goes back down into Egypt and he makes Philometer's brother, Yurgeets, Ptolemy Yurgeets, all right? He makes him the king over Alexandria, which is a city in Egypt, all right? And then, again, he doesn't do anything without cause. Then he starts treating Ophilometer that he has under his control very nicely. Now, if I was Philometer... I'd be looking for the sword under the sheath or something because it's like I've walked this road before, but he must be naive because he accepts that. And now Philometer and Antiochus go down into Egypt and Antiochus makes Philometer the king over Memphis, which is another city in Egypt. Now, finally, these brothers got it. These two brothers got it because instead of warring against one another, you know what they do? They get in cahoots with one another And they start making some plans and preparations about what they're going to do now against the north. They finally got it. I don't know what it took, but they finally got it. And so they started making plans together, all right? And so whenever you come to verse number 28, the Bible says, Then shall he, that's Antiochus Epiphanes, return into his land with great riches. His heart shall be against the holy Jews and the holy covenant, which is the Jews, the city of Jerusalem. He shall do exploits. After he left that south that time and headed back home, he kind of rattled the cage in Jerusalem a little bit. He did do uh, some horde things, but not quite as bad as what he's going to do. But he did do some exploits there, wreaked some havoc on Jerusalem, and then he returned home. But verse 29 says, And at the time appointed, he shall return and come toward the south. He's not done going down to Egypt. He goes, he's going to go down to Egypt again. But the Bible says it shall not be as the former or as the latter. In other words, it's not going to be as any of the other times whenever he went down to Egypt. He's not going to go down there. He's not going to fight. He's not going to come out victorious because verse number 30 tells us, and we looked at this, I believe, back in chapter number 8 just a little bit. Verse number 30 tells us that there's some ships out of Kittim. Sometimes it's C-H-I-T-T-I-M, sometimes K-I-T-T-I-M. Nevertheless, that speaks of Cyprus. That speaks of the, 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 the power of Rome. He went back down into Egypt. He was going to do some fighting, but Rome showed up. And Rome says, you need to decide what you're going to do if you're going to fight or if you're going to go back home because if you're going to fight, you're going to have to fight with us as well. As a matter of fact, they say the leader of Rome drew a circle around Antiochus and said, before you step out of this, you must have some type of decision made. They they virtually humiliated him. And he stepped outside the circle. He says, well, I'll just go home. Well, that's where he was going from the south to the north back home. He's mad. Number one, he didn't get the fight. He wasn't victorious. Number three, he's been humiliated. And as he goes back home, then he stops another time in Jerusalem and among the people. His anger is great. And that is whenever he sacrifices the pig in their temple. 
That is whenever he sets up the idol of Zeus in their temple. That's whenever he causes the sacrifices to cease in the temple, the, the doing away and the, the, the desecrating of the law that they had. That's whenever he does all that. And the Bible states particularly, I think it is in verse, verse number 30, and it says that he goes down, shall have indignation against the holy covenant, so shall he do. He shall even return and look, the, the phrase, and have intelligence with them that forsake the holy covenant. Well, what's going on is this. Remember, uh, Jason and now another has even fulfilled Jason's spot. I can't remember his name right now off the top of my head. But uh, he fulfilled Jason's spot because he gave Antiochus Epiphany some money in order to do so. And he's all about wealth and money. He was bought out, okay, I guess. <laughs> but anyway, he, this Greek idea has been infiltrating now Jerusalem and the Jews for some time. And so there is a, there is a segment of Jews that have abandoned their own, their own ways. There's a segment of Jews that have abandoned the ways of the Lord. And so whenever it says he will have intelligence with them that forsake the Holy Covenant, he gets to Jerusalem and gets those people that are apostate Jews that are already against the laws of the Lord and doing things awry. He knows he'll have a group that will be with him against the Jews and against Jerusalem already there. They've been indoctrinated with Greek culture and their ways are already changing. As a matter of fact, in that time, they set, they set up, because Greek Olympics was a big thing, they set up kind of like a stadium, very in close proximity to the temple, all right? And they would do their Greek games out there, which for by and large they did almost virtually naked, all right? And there's priests up there, and that became alluring to some of the priests of the temple. This is just history. But they started to involve themselves in those Greek. They, they left the church, involved themselves in sports. Now, that's, now that's what I'm just saying. And got involved in that, and they started then, because of virtue of how things were done, they made themselves then not in accordance with God's laws and God's commands. So this, this Greek doctrination was happening. So whenever Antiochus Epiphanes comes in, there's already a group that's over in less, less field and so he takes them and comes against Jerusalem with this vengeance the daily sacrifice stopped the sanctuary is polluted the pig is offered therefore it's important down the throats of priests and that should not happen it's an unclean animal Zeus the idol was set up he even promoted if you'll remember in some of the chambers of the temple open prostitution and some of those holy sacred uh, uh, chambers of the temple he was mad because he was humiliated didn't get the fight and didn't get a victory and he took it out on the Jews on his way home there is no worse per person uh, in their history per se uh, than Antiochus Epiphanes than that right there then in verse number 32 the Bible states these words and notice in verse 31 even the Bible says they shall place the abomination that make of desolate because that whole desecration of the temple thing uh, for that particular day was the abomination of desolation, which mirrors very closely for a day to come when the Antichrist will go into the temple, set himself a God, and quit all the daily sacrifice, which will be the desolation uh, ab abomination that Jesus spoke of in the book of Matthew. Uh, all right and so it's just mirroring that prefiguring all of that but in verse 32 this is this is a popular verse really uh for apostolic pentecostal people and such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries in other words those people that are already apostates and do wicked against the, he's, he's going to continue to keep them on his side why he's going to continue to flatter them and bribe them and keep them in cahoots with him but then this is a this is a phrase that a lot of people use today but the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And that's true. I believe that's true on a church level, but what in the context in which it's set, it's on a Jewish people level. The people, the Jews, which do know their God. What? People that are not being apostates in that particular hour in history. That's not falling away to the Greek culture. The people that know their God, uphold the laws and, and, and the precepts of their Lord that's from years and times go by, they're going to be strong and they're going to do exploits. What are they going to do? They're going to defend that message. They're going to defend that one God that they know to be true. So in reality, that phrase is really for the Jews. It's not so much as much for us, although I think you could apply it to us. But it's not so much for the church as it is the Jews of that particular hour and that particular day that they're going to stand up they're going to side they're going to be faithful and hold true to God and that did happen historically uh, the Jews that were true revolted against what Antiochus Epiphanes was doing and the apostates they revolted against them and fought against them as a matter of fact the history 
that takes place between the two testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And again, we talked a little bit about, uh, I think, before the Maccabean revolt. That's really what's taken place. It's those that are staying true, that are, are revolting against the apostate Jews and Antiochus Epiphanes. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of bloodshed during that time. There's a lot of lives that are lost because they were standing for truth. They were standing for what was right. But ultimately, they won out. Because ultimately they will re-enter the temple uh, under a man by the name of Judas Maccabees and they will cleanse it. And that whole thing of the, the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Lights or Hanukkah that they speak of took place and happened whenever they went in and they cleansed that temple and they put that little cruise of oil that should only lasted one day but it lasted for eight days. All happened and took place. So it did happen. And if you understand excuse me, as you go through here and you read like verses 33, 34, and 35, that's talking about that revolt and it's talking about those that had understanding. It's talking about those that stood true to the laws of God. That what these people were doing were trying to convince those who had went left field and apostates they were trying to convince them hey you need to steer right you need to steer back look at even at verse 35 and some of them of understanding shall fall to try them to purge and to make them white what are they doing they're trying to convince their brethren to come back where they need to be trying to convince their brethren to get back over and look what the scripture says that this is going this them doing that the true Jews doing that to the Jews that have went off on left field is something that's going to continue until the end of time to the time of the end they're, they're, they're constantly trying to persuade those that have went awry to get back where they need to be concerning God's laws and God's covenant and God's ways even into the end of time. But then there's a switch up that happens, folks. A switch up that happens between verse 35 and verse number 36. And this should not be uncommon. It should be something that we're acquainted with because between verse 35 and verse 36, and I've showed you several examples and lessons gone by of there being time gaps between a couple of verses or even a couple of phrases of Scripture. And so there is a switch between the verse 35 and verse 36. It's similar to the same thing that happened, or that happened, will happen, I guess I should say, between the 69th week of Daniel and Daniel chapter 9 and the 70th week of Daniel chapter number 9. And because in verse 36 we are no longer talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. We're no longer talking about this man that prefigures the Antichrist. We are talking about the Antichrist in the time of the end or in the end of time whenever we hit verse number 36. I like what John Wolverd said, and he said this, and this, I think this is uh, valid and, and important. He says, the amazingly detailed prophecies of the first 35 verses of this chapter containing as they do approximately 135 prophetic statements all now fulfilled he says constitute an impressive introduction to the events that are yet future in the beginning of verse 36 he's saying for the first 35 verses there was 135 prophecies they've already been fulfilled he says that's a pretty good platform to springboard from about those things that are still yet to be fulfilled he said, the fact is there is no supportive evidence which can contradict any statement made in these 35 verses. He says, from the divine viewpoint, the accuracy of this prophetic word is supporting evidence that prophecy yet unfulfilled will have the same precise fulfillment in the future. In other words, if they got the 135 right, then this, those that are followed from 36 on, they're going to be right. And that's a pretty good platform to go on. They're going to be right. So in verse 36, the Bible says, and the king shall do according to his will. And he shall exalt himself, magnify himself above every God and speak marvelous things against the God of God and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. For that is, for that, that, I always want to leave out one of those that's. For that, that is determined shall be done. <clears throat> Jerome, a historian, in reference to this particular verse, says and said that the Jews believe that this passage, the Jews, he said, this was the Jews now, believe that this passage has reference to the Antichrist. So this is just not something we're pulling out of the air out of our pocket. The Jews even believe that this has reference to the Antichrist. All right? <clears throat> and if you notice, everything that describes this king in verse number 36, the things that describe this king, are very similar, as I said from the onset, very similar descriptions to that was given to the little horn that we studied all the way back in Daniel chapter number 7, all right? 
For that matter, a lot of these things that are mentioned in verse 36, these descriptions, are also very similar to some of the things that are described about the man of sin given in 2 Thessalonians of the New Testament, chapter number 4. For instance, the Bible says he, this king, I'm going to go and call it the Antichrist, will do according to his will. As a matter of fact, a lot of people refer to this as the willful king because he just does whatever he wants to do. All right. And secondly, he will, he will exalt himself. Well, in, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, we read of the man of sin that is to come about, and it speaketh of him who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God. Well, that's quite a striking similarity now, isn't it? Uh, number three in that list, he will magnify himself above every God. He's going to magnify himself. Well, that's, that's for sure. We read even Thessalonians, not only will he magnify himself above every God, that's including the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that he's going to attempt to do so. Also, that he'll speak marvelous things against the God of gods. Now, if we go back to Daniel chapter 7 and verse number 8, it speaks of that little horn that comes up among the ten that he's boasting He's boasting, and he has a mouth, and he's speaking great things, the Bible says. And we indicate that little horn as being the Antichrist in Daniel chapter number 7. Also, the Scripture speaks that he'll prosper. He'll prosper, till or until the indignation be accomplished. What's the indignation? What's this trouble? It's speaking about the tribulation. More importantly, it's speaking about the great tribulation. He's going to prosper, the Antichrist will prosper and continue until all of the great tribulation be accomplished. But whenever it's accomplished, the Lord is coming from heaven with his army and he's going to whoop up (laughs) on the Antichrist. But he will prosper until that great tribulation, that indignation is accomplished. And it's important, note what the scripture says, and I'll get both bats this time because I'm thinking about it. For that, That is determined shall be done. And and in other words, everything that is written concerning that time frame is going to be fulfilled. Nothing is going to be skipped over. He will prosper till every T is crossed and every I is dotted. And then will the Lord come from heaven with his army to do battle against him. Verse number 37, the Bible says, continuing description of him, neither shall he, this is speaking of this king, this willful king, the Antichrist, Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers. It's with this statement that neither shall he regard the the God of his fathers that some begin to speculate, and there are opinions, and so I'll share them with you, that whenever you read throughout the Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, we see time and time again that the God of Israel, the God of the Jews, you see references made, he'll say, the God of your fathers. You see that time and time again in the Old Testament, the God of your fathers, the God of your fathers, to refer to the God of the Jews, the God of Israel. And so whenever they, some speculate, then that whenever this man shall not regard the God of his fathers, because the terminology is very similar, there's some that speculate that perhaps the Antichrist will be Jewish in nature. I don't know. Maybe there's a possibility there. Uh, We have had discussions just even as leaving, some leaving the church, some that have been exposed to uh, Jewish culture and Jewish people, being that they don't, not very trustworthy of anybody else except their own. Uh, That, you know, it'd be hard uh, to be deceived or or allow somebody to come into their circle unless they were of the same Jew. Uh, Yet on the other side, and I'm just, this is just thinking out loud, because whenever we're going to start talking about things that are still beyond us, I'm just throwing out variables okay (laughs) if you're looking for me to be a prophet and tell you more than what Daniel told you forget it (laughs) forget it amen Uh, but but on the same token if you remember that this antichrist is to make a covenant with the people for one week or seven years again though he would have a persuasive inroad into their life because of bringing peace to their middle east place so maybe he is Jew maybe he's not a Gentile if he settled the idea of peace in the Middle East for the Jews and got their temple mount back, I bet you they'd be a little willing to accept him <laughs> because this has been a struggle been going on for years. So there could be the possibility, maybe he is, maybe he is not. Uh, whenever it says, shall not, neither shall he regard the God of his fathers. The word God there is Elohim. 
Elohim in various portions of the scripture. Sometimes it's, it's in translated God as singular, big G-O-D, God. And there's other times that it is translated gods, little G-O-D-S, as in pagan gods. So, you know, it, it may simply mean, it, again, maybe he is a Jew or maybe perhaps it could mean that the Antichrist will not regard the gods, G-O-D-S, of whoever his fathers are or ancestry is. That he's not going to regard them as well. And so look then at the next phrase, nor the desire of women. That's interesting. I, I, I went home one night from this, this uh, uh, Bible class and I just, some t- nights I just go home and uh, I just start reading Daniel. I know, I got a dull life, don't I? But I go home some nights and before I lay in bed as I go to sleep at night and I just read Daniel because I'm teaching Daniel. And so I just read it and read it and read it. Um, Grandpa Holland, he said years ago he wouldn't understand Daniel. God told him to read Daniel, uh, Ezekiel, and Revelation until he understood it. And that's how it all came about for him. He just read it until he understood it. And so I just thought, well, I'm just going to read Daniel. You know? And so I was reading this one night. Whenever I came across this, it really, wow, you know, the Antichrist, nor the desire, nor the desire, oop, I said God. Well, that's one of them. Nor the desire of women is the thing. Now, some, some conjecture this. All right, I'm just throwing out the variables here. That in that day and age, in leading up to the coming of the Messiah, the desire of women was that they would be the mother, mother of the Messiah. It being prophesied of Isaiah and so forth, so the desire of women. And so, and this is a stretch in my imagination, okay. But some believe then the desire of women is then that he will not have a desire for the Messiah. Well, hands down, no, the Antichrist is not having a desire for the Messiah. I mean, I mean, it doesn't take rocket science to figure that one out. All right. Some believe that this desire of women, because in that second time of culture, that there was a god or goddess uh, that women had a propensity toward worshiping. And so some believe that perhaps the Antichrist then is not going to have a desire toward whatever it is those women had. And I don't remember the god or goddess that it was that a desire toward uh, worshiping. Uh, but some other things that we might consider right here, perhaps if I spell this right, could it mean that the Antichrist will be celibate, won't be married, won't be given to sexual relations, almost like a, a priesthood type thing? This is the one that I lean toward. This is just me. You can do whatever you want. Could the Antichrist be a homosexual? And I, have, I don't have nothing to say that's it. That's just a variable. But the way that our world is turning... It would be easier, let me say it like that, it would be easier the way our world is turning than for something, someone in that position to get a place of preeminence and power the way and speed that we're headed from the standpoint of now. And I don't know when the end of time is going to come and how bad that, it's going to get worse. The Bible tells me the world's going to wax worse. It's going to get worse. What I'm saying is this, okay, Generations ago, if the Antichrist came generations ago and this was, in fact, his calling card, he would not be accepted. But in today's generation, that doesn't pose a problem. Again, now don't anybody go away from here and say, Pastor Dee says the Antichrist is homosexual. I don't know if he is or not. It's just a possibility because he shall have no desire of women however you wish to interpret that and again we're standing now now see we're in that we're in those uncharted waters we're not looking back over our shoulder and saying we got history that corresponds no it's still prophecy for us even now it's a game changer now isn't it because we're not looking backward we're looking forward so all we see is possibilities or variables that it could be we can maybe get narrowed down a little bit possibilities what it could be all right so that's just i'm just throwing that out there as a possibility ability a possibility amen because by and large the direction that our our world is headed and the bible continues to say in verse number excuse me 37 that he will not regard any god all right and that phrase all right that phrase concerning the antichrist i think makes it very clear that we are not still talking about antiochus epiphanies because antiochus set up the god the idol zeus in the temple for people to worship this dude doesn't regard any god 
So I think that shows us that we're not talking about oh, Antiochus Epiphanes anymore because he regarded Zeus enough that he set him up in the temple of the Jews. This guy regards no God. So I believe you understand. We switch rows somewhere between verse 35 and verse number 36. We're speaking of the Antichrist here. In verse 38, if you read verse 38, and I'm not going to read all these verses. Again, I'm trying to, a little bit verse by verse, but not get in all of that. But whenever it speaks about his estate, that he shall honor the gods of forces, and basically that he's going to honor these gods of forces with gold, silver, precious stones, and pleasant things. Well, what is this God of forces? He's not regarding any God. Well, you know, there's some things people don't, don't consider gods. For one thing, he's exalted himself, so he's made himself God. All right? But also, what I believe in this, again, this is no hard fast. I don't have anything to go off of. I'm just opinionating here, all right? The God of forces could very well be speaking that this Antichrist may be referring to a strong military. They have a strong military and that he'll use his wealth and I think being that there's gold and silver and precious stones that he honors the God of forces with. And I think we can see some correspondence when we get to the book of Revelation that there will be a strong military presence and that there will also... And the re, back up. The reason why I say that is that if there is going to become an army of thousands of thousands, which speaks of around 200 million huh, people that come from the east across the Euphrates River that dries up, you're going to have to have somewhat of an army to contend with that. And that there will be, if he having this gold and silver and all these riches in order to amass and honor, if you will, support to garner military strength, then I'm, I'm, this is just me now, okay? I'm, I want to emphasize that. Somebody's going to go out here and just say everything, this is what it is. Well, there's people like that that teach, you know, things that are still yet to come just like that, but I'm not one of them. Uh, I'm glad that they're so convinced. I'm not, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just giving you my opinion. So I see then a strong military presence, but I see then, because of this riches, a strong economic, strong economic presence in order to support such a military a God of forces, if you will. So building a strong military, I can see, with his resources, uh, I think may allude to the fact that the, that the Antichrist will have a strong military and some strong economic power to build that military. And what interests me in that is because whenever we look at our military among different nations today, you know what they're doing? They're cutting funding. There's a lot of funds being cut for military, various nations. Rather than bulking them up, they're reducing them. Well, wouldn't that be a fine time as funds and militaries are being reduced that there would be one that would come among and bring out a bulk military power to start to conquer countries and nations? Just food for thought. Amen. And so then in verse number 39, in verse 39, the Bible speaks of him obtaining some land and, and obtaining some more riches that he gains by his military pursuits. And look what he does. Again, Antiochus prefigured him really well because it seems as though that he distributes then some of those lands and some of those riches to people who will honor him, people who will honor him. He gives them, look at the, the, the scripture, and it says, and he shall cause them to rule, look, over many. He's going to set leaders and people up. He said, we'll make you a ruler. Why are you doing that? Because I want to keep you on my side. You want to keep somebody in cahoots with you, give them a position. Yeah, he said, so you, you, you'll rule over many. And then he divides some of the riches, some of the land, give them part of the bounty. And so he's going to do that. What? He's going to keep them in, in, in a close circle and cahoots with him, making them, you know, some, 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 giving them some power, if you will, uh, themselves. And so he's going to divide up the land because he wants to maintain the allegiance that he gets from them. And in verse number 40, the Bible says, at the time of the end, now, we're going to look at this first. I'm going to get this here. At the time of the end, and I ain't going to write it out because you'd all have to stand here and watch me write it. The Bible says, and at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him. What we need to, and I don't know if we can't figure out, but we need to look at what is that first him? All right. Well, but the south shall push at him and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships, and he shall enter to the countries and shall overflow, pass over. We got him. We got a second him. 
And then I want to look at how many of those there are. There might only be one. I think it's the last one. The only one, the only one in there. There's a he. By all means, they threw that in on us. <clears throat> now I'm going to read this through a couple different ways and show you what, what our quandary is. And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at the Antichrist. And the king of the north shall come against the Antichrist, like a whirlwind, with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships. And, listen, the Antichrist shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. That's one way. That's one way. But here's another thing to consider. And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, him being the king of the north. And the king of the north shall come against him. He's going to push back at the king of the south. Like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships. And he, the king of the north, continuing with his horsemen and chariots, shall enter to the, the countries and shall overflow and pass over. The difficulty is this. Is there a king in the north and the king in the south that's coming against the Antichrist? Or is the king of the north the Antichrist? Okay. All right. That, that's where we're at. Because, see, the, with that being said, yeah, the king of the north could possibly be the Antichrist. Thinking, if we consider, back at chapter 8, the notable horns broken, four horns come up, and then a little horn comes out of one of those four divisions. That's oh, like and Cassander and Salu and Ptolemy. All right? Remember, we're back to now where this is north, the Seleucid kingdom. Ptolemy is the southern kingdom. All right? There's a possibility, and there's a possibility that the Antichrist, since there's a little horn that came up, let me draw that like that, since there's a little horn that came up out of those Greek divisions, that possibly what Scripture was telling us Perhaps Scripture's been narrowing the playing field for us. Because back at chapter number 7, we knew that he was a little horn that came among the ten, remember horns, of the revived Roman Empire. Uh-huh. Revived Roman Empire. Empire, not power. Empire. In chapter number 7. Maybe they're narrowing the, the field. Revived Roman Empire. Okay. But within the revived Roman Empire, what do we have? They swallowed up Greece. They swallowed up the Greece kingdom. Again, you'll, you'll remember me going over this a little bit before. Greek, this is Rome. So if he comes out of Rome, that's great, but maybe they're narrowing the field. There was four divisions. The a little horn then came out of one of those divisions of the Greek empire. Well, maybe they're narrowing the field a little bit more for us. I'm just saying, don't know. Because if he were the king of the north, then we would know more particularly what division of the four of the revived Roman Empire that he would be coming out of. So there's a good chance that the king of the north could be the Antichrist or you just look at it as both the north and the south kingdoms come against the Antichrist but the he, if you're looking at it like that the he remains the Antichrist whether he is the Antichrist and so happens to also be the king of the north he is always the Antichrist because that he goes on and does all the conquering all the dominion, and that's going to be the Antichrist, not the king of the north separate from the Antichrist, if he's not. Okay, is everybody following with me? Are you all right? And so in that, I don't know. I don't know. But you can see where the theory of thought could come from in that. Uh, Bishop Walls in his commentary on the book of Daniel indicates that the king of the north in the end is in fact the man of sin the son of perdition. Bishop Walsh says the king of the north is the Antichrist. And he probably has a whole lot more knowledge and years of experience in order to make that statement than what I do. So we lean on him, all right? And so the Antichrist comes, and if you read the, and I'm going, I know I gotta hurry up and quit here because next week's probably gonna be it, folks. I'm telling you, it's gonna be it. But the Antichrist comes, he comes with quite a fleet of artillery and power. Uh, the Bible has him overtaken several countries. The Bible says that he's going to enter into the glorious land. Who, who, what do you think the glorious land is? Glorious land? Israel. The glorious land. land. 
as, as it's phrased in verse number 41. Uh, he's going to come then into the king of the south. He's going to come into Egypt, and Egypt's not going to escape this time. Egypt's not going to escape this time by no means. And again, I, you know, you, whenever you start reading this stuff, your mind can do a lot, of, a lot of theories and a lot of playing because this little horn's supposed to rise and take out three kingdoms. You know, you, you start thinking about all kinds of stuff and start, you know, do your own little drawing lines and, you know, the possibilities. But, but, but Egypt will not escape. But the Bible says Edom, Moab, and Ammon, they do escape. So Egypt's over here in, 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 the, in the south, southwest, and over here we got Edom and we got Moab and we got Ammon over here in, in, in the southeast. And the Bible says they're going to escape. Well, if you remember Edom, Ammon, and Moab, they've been three enemies of the children of Israel for eons of time anyway, from the very beginning. Uh, Edom is directly related with Esau. Esau is called Edom. And the Edomites come from Esau. Well, they've been with odds with the children of God for years. Uh, Moab and Ammon, they, they are those people. They come from two sons, Moab and Ammon. The sons, they are the sons of the daughters of Lot. Remember, Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed. Uh, Lot's two daughters, one's younger, one older. They both go in to lay with their father, an incestuous relationship. And out from them come Moab and Ammon. And those two breeds of people were against God's people from the very beginning. So I don't know if they escaped because why touch somebody that's already against God's people to begin with that have roots at least in that. And so they, they, they escaped for, for some measure. And interestingly enough, they're found in modern-day Jordan, uh, the capital of Jordan, Ammon. <laughs> it's its name from Ammon, uh, the, the, the Ammonites, the people. In verse 43, it tells us that he's going to gain riches from Egypt. You're going to see that, Libya and Ethiopia. Then verse 44 tells us that while this is going on, there's going to come tidings from the east. Tidings from the east. Now, I don't know this, but the tidings from the east could be the oriental people. A lot of them over east. Japan, China, mm -hmm, India. All right. This, maybe this is the tidings of that huge army that the book of Revelation speaks of possibility that will cross the Euphrates River from the east going to the west and there will be tidings from the north now if Antichrist is the king of the north what's more northern than all that a pretty big country up there called Russia that the book of Ezekiel speaks of in the battle of Gog and Magog Russia is up there there will be tidings from the north and the fighting that will happen between all this will eventually lead into what we know to be the battle of Armageddon and whenever the Lord will come back and plant himself in the battle with his saints verse number 45 look speaking of the antichrist he will plant himself in he will plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain well the glorious holy mountain is Mount Zion Jerusalem Israel between the seas the Mediterranean Sea we got the Dead Sea he's going to plant himself in between there in the glorious holy mountain in Jerusalem and the Bible says he was going to come to his end and then shall help him because whenever the Lord brings out his whip and stick will be the word from his mouth as a sword the scripture says and his name will be faithful and true and it's going to is, you know what's awesome to me whenever I read that concerning scripture about the word of God he's coming down and he's using that against the Antichrist and we've been talking about the word of God, at least I did last Sunday. Does that not again illustrate then how some big major power, the word, is and shall be? Amen. Again, stand with me tonight. Come next week, chapter number 12. It'll be it. Daniel will. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.